good morning. I love watching that. <laughs> I'm so grateful to be here with you this morning. My name is Dana, and um, it is my real delight to be bringing this particular message. Uh, this is my favorite one in the series. It doesn't mean it has to be your favorite. That's okay, but it's my favorite. We're a little more than halfway through our series in Ephesians, A Life Worthy of the Calling. And we've been using these little booklets, these little booklets, to help us follow along through the series. And so if yours is in your mailbox by the door, you are more than welcome right now to sneak out and get it. Uh, if you have it, good for you. If you're new with us this morning and you'd like one, Members of the Dream Team are ready to help you get it. So if you can just raise your hand, if you don't have a booklet, just raise your hand. Don't be embarrassed. It happens every single week. Yes, perfect. We really want to make sure that you get one. <laughs> That's so great. Good. Now, <laughs> the first half of the book of Ephesians is about a worldview. It's about describing a worldview. That's what the video is about. God has a plan to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. And he's doing that through the church, through us. And today we're kind of, we're turning a corner in the book of Ephesians. In the second half of this letter, Paul starts giving us some very practical advice about how to live into the reconciliation as the church. So that's where we are today. And I don't know about you, but I am kind of ready for some practical. So let's read this scripture together. Today we're reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, which is about seven-ish pages into your booklet. You can find it. It'll say at the top, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. I'll read this for us. I, therefore, a prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children 
tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. It's a long chunk of scripture today, so thanks for sticking with me. The first thing I notice in this text is the word beg. Right out of the gate, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I have to tell you, I really identify with Paul here. I identify with that feeling of begging. I know what it's like to be watching from a distance people you really care about and hoping, longing for them to make the right choice, hoping that they'll live up to their potential. Do you know what that's like? Like like maybe... You're close with someone who's newly sober, and you're watching them go into a work meeting that's being held at a bar, right? Or maybe you're letting your teenager go to an all-night party for the first time, and you have done everything you can to get them ready for that moment, and you can't force them, and you can't do it for them, but man, you're longing for them to do the right thing longing for them to live up to who they can be. That's where Paul is. He's actually locked in prison. And he has these little churches that he deeply loves scattered all over. And they're facing the most challenging things we can imagine. And he's done everything he could for them. And he can't choose for them. And he can't force them. But he really hopes. He prays that he'll do it. He's begging them. For what? I beg you, it says, to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I want you to live worthy of your calling. I want you to live up to this thing that is set before you. Remember that in Ephesians, the you is always a plural pronoun. That's never singular, right? It's like saying y'all. Okay, so this isn't about finding your specific calling. It's not different for every person. It's not like Paul is begging one person to live up to their calling to be a doctor and another person to live up to their calling to befriend refugees. It's not like that. I beg all of you together to live a collective life worthy of your collective calling to reconciliation. He really emphasizes together, right? Look how many times he uses the word one. I'm looking at verse four in my booklet. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Well, it is hard to be one. And Paul is really practical about what it will take. It's not going to take power or force or persuasive arguments. It's not that. This is from verse 2. 
It takes humility. It takes gentleness. It takes patience. It takes bearing with one another in love. And this isn't just for the original readers of Ephesians. This is really for us today here at the Erickson Covenant Church. What will it take for us to be one? Paul says it takes making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Making every effort. I want to highlight that because we kind of live now in a day and age of instant gratification and, you know, prepackaged, ready to serve everything. Right? We think everything should be ready to go immediately. Although I've been thinking about this, and I think in Creston, because you live in Creston, you might have a slight advantage over everybody else in North America. This is the first place that I have ever lived where people, all of you would rather, hatch and raise and butcher and clean and cut up and prepare your own chicken then pick up one of those clean styrofoam packages from the store. I've never seen a group like that before, right? Or you'd even rather pick, sort, clean, pit, freeze, and can your own fruit instead of just buy a jar of jam for $1.78. You guys, you people, (laughs) know the value of hard work. You know it's good to do it this way. I mean, this week, and this is not an exaggeration, I listened to an hour-long conversation about the best ways to cool down game that you were trying to drag out of the backcountry so that the meat didn't overheat and spoil, which, by the way, in case you're interested, is to wrap it tightly in garbage bags and then dip it into the water, like float it in the river until the core temperature cools down, which is a lot of work to make a stew, Right? A lot of work. (laughs) Paul is asking you to bring that kind of dedication to the relationships that you have in the church. If a relationship is broken, ask yourself, have I made every effort? Have I done everything in my power to repair it? If you are feeling disconnected from the church community, ask yourself, have I made every effort to reconnect? Or are you trying to get away with a prepackaged, ready-to-serve relationship? Are you waiting for someone else to do that work for you? Every effort. Now, if that seems daunting, that's because it should. It's an incredibly high call, and I don't know about you, but I am not naturally humble or gentle or patient or loving, right? None of those. I know some people who seem to have been born gentle and patient, and I am incredibly jealous of those people which is just one more way that I am contributing to fracturing the body of Christ, right? Jealousy is not good for us. I am none of those things by nature. So how are we supposed to do this? We need some help. 
I notice in this next section of scripture that Paul mentions gifts a number of times. In verse 7, he says, We are given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. In verse 8, he says, He gave gifts to his people. And in verse 11, he says, The gifts he gave. See, God has called the church to this very challenging work of reconciliation, but he has actually met us before. And he knows that we are going to need some help. And so he gives gifts to his people. And not just any gifts and not for any reason. He gives these gifts to help us live lives worthy of the calling. Here's what he gave. This is verse 11 and following. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. And so I want us to consider two questions this morning. What exactly are the gifts? And then, what are the gifts for? What are the gifts? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The gifts that Christ gave were people. Right? He gave the church five particular kinds of people. And this list is sometimes called the fivefold leadership gifting. And these five kinds of leaders are what the church needs to live into its calling. And so whatever picture you have about who leaders are this morning, or whatever baggage you have about it, because some of us, myself included, we have some baggage about leadership, let's just see what kind of leadership Christ had in mind for the church. So first of all, apostles. The word apostles means sent one. And apostles are people who are sent from place to place, and they form little communities wherever they go. Paul was an apostle, right? And that's the way that he primarily served the church. He would move to a new place and spend a relatively short period of time there, a few months to a couple of years. And he would build faith up in a small group of people, establish a gathering, teach them everything he knew about Jesus. Because, and this is important, apostles don't stay in one place for too long. They kind of get antsy, right? They want to build. They want to start something new. They always want to be in on the front end. And so they build a little core who can take care of what they did. And then they move on. Apostles are the entrepreneurs of the church. They're always starting a new thing. And you can tell, even now, that someone is an apostle if they're always drawn to outsiders. They're always thinking up something we haven't thought of yet. They're the people who are interested in who is not in the room. And it's not always like individual people. It's more like a group. So it would be the apostles who are always saying to us, shouldn't we have a more substantial ministry to the pickers while they're here? Or shouldn't we have something going on every week for the youth who are on the street? They're thinking about who's not in the room. 
And we need those people because as a rule, as the church, we are satisfied with whoever is in the room with us. Apostles challenge us to see beyond ourselves. They're naturally compelled to move out. And so they build bridges between us and whoever we don't know yet. Take a minute while you're listening to jot down in your booklets, who are some of the people that you think are apostles among us? Who are the apostles at Erickson Covenant Church? I'm going to talk about prophets next. Prophets are often misunderstood, right? They don't have a magical ability to see into the future. Prophets aren't fortune tellers. Throughout Scripture, these are people who can see where groups are moving against God's will. They're the ones who are sent to warn people that if they continue down the path they're on, there are going to be consequences. Now, in a church, (laughs) there's a lot of children outside who are prophets. They're warning us that if we continue down this path, there's going to be consequences. Okay. Um, In a church, the prophets are the people who keep coming to the leaders over and over again to complain. Not about trivial things, right? But they're the people who keep coming to say, I don't think we're on the right track. I think this practice that we have might be wrong. They're trying to sound the alarm for us. And they want the people who have the power in the the room to listen. And so the truth is that we often experience prophets as annoying. We feel threatened or hurt by uh, their critique, and very few of us want to hear it. My mentor, Allison, used to say, no one who really has the gift of prophecy will ever brag about that because it's a terrible gift to have, and nobody likes prophets. Think about it. Who wants to stand up and tell everyone they're wrong? Who wants to challenge the authority structure or speak against the current way of living? So, unfortunately... There are not a lot of prophets in the church today. They tend to get silenced. Or they tend to leave discouraged when they find no one is receptive to their message. But here's the thing. A prophet's message is usually right, even if it's painful. They're wired to see what most of us miss. They see the heart of God and what needs to change for the church to come in line with it. And if we can learn how to listen to them, if we can be humble enough, open enough to change, we are so much more likely to stay on the right path with God. So, who do you think are the prophets among us? The third in the list is evangelists. Evangelists are people who are drawn to those who are not Christians. They have an incredible gift for explaining the story of Jesus. They're easy to pick out, right, because people just seem to magically become Christians around them all the time. Every conversation is a conversation about Jesus in airplanes and taxi cabs at restaurants, in the lineup at the grocery store, not to mention the steady stream of people 
who are in their homes and at their jobs. I have some friends who have this gift. I don't have this one. And uh, it's magical to watch it in action. Like, unless we have to be somewhere on time, (laughs) you know, or unless I was hoping to have that person all to myself that day, then it's challenging. In a church, this this is too bad. In a church, evangelists can sometimes seem flaky. Hear me out. They are often very reluctant to commit to anything inside the church because they don't want anything to take time away from the relationships they're building outside the church. They tend to show up late to meetings or just not show up at all without telling anyone because they got into a conversation somewhere and they stayed to lead that person to Jesus. And so it looks like a lack of discipline or it looks like flakiness, but actually it's a profound commitment to one priority above all else, to introduce people to Jesus, and they don't let anyone get in the way of that. Who are the evangelists among us? Let's talk about pastors. This is probably the kind of leader that we're most familiar with. Pastors have a natural capacity to care for and nurture others. They shepherd them and guide them. In fact, some translations of scripture use the word shepherd here instead of pastor. Pastors can just be present in difficult moments in life. They give counsel and spiritual care, and they are primarily concerned with the well-being of individual members of the body. And we love being led by pastors. It's so nice to be led by a pastor, truly, because these are the people who genuinely care about each one of us individually. They nurture us. They're there for us. It's the kind of leadership we're most comfortable with and most familiar with, and we need it. Who are the pastors among us? And finally, teachers. This is another type of leader we're familiar with. We see teachers all over the place, and they're primarily concerned with helping us take in information. Right? They want us to be able to think and understand. I mean, what I'm doing right now is the role of a teacher. It's a big one in our, in our modern-day churches, presenting and explaining and conveying information. And in a church, teachers tend to be internally focused. They're concerned with information for the people who are in the room. They want you to learn everything there is to learn. And when someone is really gifted as a teacher, you want to learn it. Because they're incredibly good at figuring out how to communicate in a way that's accessible to people. They're engaging and creative. They keep working at new ways to teach. And sometimes teachers are able to teach you how to do something that they can't even do themselves, which can seem hypocritical, you know, or just deeply unfair. But, um, but really, it's a mark of a gift that they're able to communicate with you. You find yourself thinking, oh, I get it now. I never thought of it that way before. So who are the teachers among us? According to Ephesians, Christ gave apostles and prophets, and evangelists, and pastors, and teachers as leaders for the church. But I bet 
that you have only ever encountered a couple of those in your church experience. In North America, the people that we've chosen to lead the church are almost exclusively pastors and teachers. There's a book called Release the Apes that I would encourage all of you to read. It's an ebook, so you find it online, and it's free, so you don't have to pay anything. Uh, and it suggests, there it is right there, Release the Apes. Um, it's called, the subtitle is An On-Ramp to Activating Apostolic, Prophetic, and Evangelistic Leaders. So ape is apostles, prophets, and evangelists. The book suggests that because the church in North America has been so socially dominant, like the Christian church has had a lot of power in North America for a long time. And so we've only needed to be concerned with the people who are in the room with us already. And so we hire pastors to take care of them, and we hire teachers to equip them, and that's it. And if a leader comes in who's an evangelist, for, an exa- for example, who's always concerned with leading other people to Christ, they're always building relationships outside the church, we tend to feel um, resentful of that and a little bit annoyed. And we might find ourselves saying, our uh, pastor's like always out there with them, but what about us? We hired that guy to take care of us and our needs. We don't like having evangelists as leaders. And so established churches, we tend to run off leaders who are evangelists or prophets because we don't like hearing what we're doing wrong or apostles, although the apostles might already be ready to go. And so the book suggests that we have functionally eliminated three of the five types from leadership in the church. We've put apostles and prophets and evangelists, the apes, in a cage. And we don't let them out to do their work. That's probably why you haven't encountered too many of them. We don't tend to hire them into leadership. And we don't tend to build up those gifts. But Paul says we need all five types active and empowered in our churches which brings us back to the questions. Now that we understand what the gifts are, what are they for? Verse 12 in Ephesians has some of the clues. It's these two little words, two and four. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And they're given for building up the body of Christ. Leaders are responsible for building up the body, increasing its size, its capacity, and its maturity, and equipping the saints, the believers, us here, for the work of the ministry. So it is not the job of the leaders to do all the ministry themselves. Their job, and actually I'm going to switch pronouns now because I know that I'm one of these people. Our job is to make sure that you are equipped for the ministry. Every one of you and all of you together. Now some of you, whether you know it or not, don't really like this gift of leadership, right? 
Some of you would rather return that gift to the store and exchange it for something else or maybe just keep the cash. Because truthfully, when we come to church, we'd like to hear a nice message and have some coffee and visit with our friends and then go home and be left alone. We'd like to be accepted for who we are, right where we are, just the way we are forever. I'm so sorry to break this to you, but that cannot happen. Of course we love you and accept you, but that's just the beginning. It's our job to equip you. It's our job to increase your capacity and get you ready to do ministry. It's our job to make sure that you are equipped to lead a life worthy of the calling. And according to the scripture, our job is not done until, see that word in verse 13, until all of us, every single one, come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. That's the end game. That all of us are mature. That all of us are living in unity together. That we have all come to the full stature of Christ. I want you to understand that when we challenge you, when we pray for you, when we ask you to serve, when we want you to join a Bible study or a ministry team, it's not because we're lazy or bored or we just want you to be busier. It's because we're trying to equip you. We're trying to build up the body. We're trying to help you come to maturity. And all of you who are, if you're being honest, a little bit annoyed with me for bugging you about the Timothy Project, even though you're busy next year, here's the thing. I am not doing the Timothy Project because I don't have enough to do. I don't need to study through the Gospel of Mark again. I have done that 10 or 12 times already. You need this. You need this. Some of you have these leadership gifts, and you don't know it yet, or you don't know how to use them. You, my friends, are the gifts that Jesus gave to this group of believers, to equip them for the work of the ministry. I want to help you get ready to do that. Paul goes on in verse 14 to give an exhortation. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine. This is a picture of immaturity. It's a picture of an immature church. A community trying to make it through without any leaders. They are absolutely going to get tossed around and blown about. We need leaders. And we don't need a figurehead or a CEO. We don't need a dictator telling everybody what to do. That is not at all the gift of leadership that Paul is describing. Paul is talking about a group, a circle of people with diverse gifts 
who share vision and values and are mutually submitted to one another. The authors of Release the Apes, uh, they suggest that every gift has particular vulnerabilities that are unique to its, to its gifting. And that they work best when all five types are submitted to one another. So prophets, for instance, I'm sure you can imagine this, they tend to be so concerned with the truth that they are very harsh. They can really hurt the people that they're trying to help. And so prophets must be submitted to pastors who are uniquely attuned to the heart and feelings of the people. Pastors, however, tend to be consumed by the needs of the people, trying to care for everyone. They can forget that there's anyone outside who hasn't heard about Jesus. And so pastors need to be submitted to evangelists who keep calling them out into relationship with those outside their circle. And evangelists, you can see how this is going to go, tend to be so concerned with leading people to Jesus that they get lax about good teaching. They're often willing to agree with something. Yeah, that's right, it's like that. Even if it's not really like that. Just for the sake of getting someone into relationship with Jesus. Evangelists need to be submitted to teachers who pay attention to good teaching and doctrine. Teachers, though, they can live in their heads. Right? They can be so preoccupied with all there is to learn, they get stuck in this endless cycle of information and never do any actual ministry. And so teachers must be submitted to apostles who are constantly chomping at the bit to get going. Let's do something and build something new. But finally, apostles can be impulsive. They want to start everything but they struggle to finish anything and see it through. On their own, they might leave a string of ministries that are kind of floundering, struggling to stay afloat. And so apostles need to be submitted to prophets who hold their feet to the fire and help them do the hard work of bringing those communities to maturity before they move on to the next thing. See that cycle? That is a beautiful picture of mutually submitted leaders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And Paul ends this section of the letter by saying, we must grow up, this is in verse 15, in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. You know, in school we move up from grade to grade, don't we? That's just a natural part of our life. And at work, We train so that we can be promoted and have more responsibility. But in our Christian faith, sometimes we forget to grow. We make a decision one time, and we kind of want to just coast after that. But our call is not to remain children. We have to grow up. I like that the Bible actually tells us to grow up. I'm sure you can find a way to use that this week. We have to grow up in every way into Christ. So what are we going to do? Here's the application for us. First of all, we need to embrace leadership. 
How have you been responding to leaders lately? Have you ever considered leaders to be gifts from God? Try praying for your leaders. I mean, pray for the ones who are already here. But also pray that God would raise up new ones over the coming months. And if you've been resistant to leadership, don't worry, because myself included, you are in good company. If you've been resistant, consider how you want to make that right. What do you need to do to be able to receive the equipping that they're offering? The second thing is the Timothy Project. We've talked a lot about this. I want you to help me make this program all it can be for our church. This is a program for equipping leaders. It's a big commitment, but we need it. And we need people who have these gifts to decide to join. And we've decided to extend the deadline for the Timothy Project for a while. I want to host an information session so that you have a chance to ask some more questions and get some more details about it. The info session is going to happen on August 17th. I'm not entirely sure when we're going to close the application deadline. But here's what I want to ask you. Please help me get the people who should be there out that night. Some of your friends are letting this opportunity slip past um, because they're worried about time commitment or they're not sure they want to get more involved. And the problem is there's no way for me to know what's going on for every single person out there. But you know who they are. I want to encourage you to step up this week and speak the truth and love to your friends and encourage someone to take part in this program. All right. That is a lot of me pushing a program. I want you to know that as one of your leaders, I long for you. I hope for you. I pray for you. I'm asking God to bring this vision of a healthy, thriving church to pass among us. And I'm begging you, alongside Paul, to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And I'm really glad that God has asked me in this season to be one of the leaders who equipped you. It's a real gift to me. We have the the joy, the privilege this morning of celebrating communion to close our service. And so if this is new to you, if you're visiting, communion is a practice within the church where we eat bread and wine or juice uh, together to remember the last meal that Jesus ate with his friends before he died. And Jesus asked us to keep doing it to remember him. And so we do this together here about once a month. And we practice a form of communion that's known as intinction, which just means you're supposed to take the piece of bread and dip it in the cup. You don't drink out of the cup. It's different from place to place. And this morning we're going to have two communion stations. And we'd like you to come down the center aisle, out to the communion station, and then around the outside aisle back to your seat. Now, also the first morning of the dream team and the dream team is going to help us 
with communion. So this is a little bit new, but there will be two ushers who will come into the middle aisle, and they'll, they'll move back to let you know when it's time for your row to come forward. And that just helps you know that, the, that there's space, so we don't have to line up forever. If you're not ready to move at that point, if you need some more time, that's fine, don't worry, but the ushers will come to the row to help us know what we're doing. A lot of little details about communion here. Um, all of the bread is gluten-free, so you can eat it no matter what. Um, and, uh, we, and there's going to be napkins at the front if you need one. And if for any reason coming to the front is difficult for you, you can just stay where you are and someone will bring the elements to you when we're done. So can I have the servers and uh, the members of the worship team come forward and I'll serve you first.